You guys um, are in for a treat. This morning, we had a powerful, powerful time at 9 o'clock. And so I know that God is going to move powerfully, and uh, it's going to be a blessing for, for you today. Um, today, we're focusing in on um, a particular issue that we believe is near and dear to God's heart. Um, last week, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. And the very fact of the resurrection, we were reminded that God makes us right with God so that the things in the world might be made right. We're reminded that we have a mission. We have a mission to participate in the work of restoring and renewing our broken and fallen creation. And that that mission isn't just for a few, but that it's for all of us. Today, we're talking about an issue, frankly, that's very controversial, very um, sensitive, and frankly, not a lot of churches, as we'll learn, is engaging in because of its hot topic nature of it. Today we have two speakers and we also are going to hear from our church family about the issue of immigration. So I'm going to invite Matt and I'm going to invite Jenny, co-authors of a book called Welcoming the Stranger. Please come on up. Um, And they are going to share with us um, an issue uh, that we believe, as I said, is biblical and it's near and dear to God's heart. So, I want us to give a warm welcome, okay? They're vis- and get, uh, visitors and guests to our church. Let's give them a warm welcome for what they're going to do, okay? I was here about three years ago, uh, and Pastor Peter interviewed me on this topic of immigration. So, some of you have heard me before, and it's really great to be back here. We talk about this topic of immigration. You know, there are economic and political and social ramifications to this topic. But our goal, since we're in church, is let's look at this from a biblical perspective. What does Scripture say that might guide us as God's people as we think about this topic, which can be very controversial? And I want to suggest that there's a few models biblically that we could follow as we think about how do we receive immigrants? How do we respond to the realities of immigration here in our country in the United States? The first model I want to look at is, it's in the book of Genesis, the end of Genesis, there's the story of an immigrant. His name is Joseph. Some of you know this story, and you maybe didn't think about it as an immigrant story, but Joseph crossed borders. Mm. He was actually an involuntary migrant. He was what today we would call a victim of human trafficking, forced into slavery in Egypt. But I actually don't want to look at Joseph so much as to look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt who had, the, had to respond to this immigrant in his country. And Pharaoh actually had some problems of his own. He had these bad dreams. He thought they meant something. And he was told that this immigrant had some skills. He knew how to interpret dreams. He had this connection to God. So Pharaoh saw this immigrant, Joseph, and he saw an opportunity. And he you know, gave Joseph a lot of responsibility. He, he interpreted this dream. It turns out there was going to be a great famine in the land of Egypt. And again, Pharaoh's thinking opportunity. He says, well, you seem pretty smart. Why don't you be in charge of famine relief? And this immigrant, Joseph, essentially saved the society of Egypt. And then a few chapters later, Joseph's family is, comes to Egypt. Again, because there's famine. Famine, poverty are still probably the number one reasons that people migrate today. And so when Joseph's family arrives there in Egypt, and the response of Pharaoh is one of hospitality, one of welcoming strangers. He says, here's the very best of the land. Although still he's looking for an opportunity. He takes a, he takes Joseph aside and says, hey, I know your brothers are shepherds. Which one of them is the best? Because I want them in charge of my sheep. So that's one way that we could think about responding to immigration. We could see an opportunity, and we could respond with welcome. But if you flip a few pages further in your text, you finish the book of Genesis, and you get into the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, it starts with another pharaoh. And it says, this is a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And I think that phrase might be instructive, because when you know about a whole bunch of people, but you don't know one of them by name and by face, it's easy to respond as this Pharaoh did. Mm. He saw a lot of people, the Israelites, the descendants of Joseph, and he was afraid. He saw that there was some national security concerns in his mind. There's just too many of these people. And then you've got some economic issues at play, because it's not actually that Pharaoh wanted to deport the Israelites, because actually he, he benefited from their labor. Um, It says in the text that they were building the cities of Egypt. So he wanted their work. He just didn't want them as people. He didn't want to dignify them with the rights that he would give to an Egyptian citizen. 
And this fear was so much that eventually he responded with incredible hostility and basically began a genocide of little Israelite children, little Israelite boys in Egypt. He said that they were to be killed. And it's into that context that the story of Moses begins. Moses is born as one of those little Israelite baby boys, and his parents don't actually follow the law. They, they creatively find their way around the law, just like most of us would do if the law said to kill our children. And I won't go through the whole story of the Exodus because we've got a lot to talk about today, but basically, suffice it to say, Pharaoh's not the hero of the story. Pharaoh's kind of the villain, and it doesn't end up very well for him. And I would suggest that we would do much better as we think about immigration in our society to think about immigration the way the pharaoh of that first story, the pharaoh over the time of Joseph did, to see an opportunity and to respond with hospitality, with welcome, with compassion. Now, immigration is an opportunity economically. Um, Economists will tell you about 96% of economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal say that illegal immigration in particular has helped the U.S. economy. But I don't want to necessarily look just at the economics. I want to look at this from a Christian perspective. How is immigration an opportunity for the church? And one way that I think it's an opportunity is it's an opportunity to seek God's justice. I'm going to read this passage from Jeremiah 22. It says, this is what the Lord says. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from the hand of his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the foreigner, the fatherless, or the wicked. So we have an opportunity to seek justice, but the reality is there's a lot of injustice in our society today, in our own country, as it relates to immigration. And I know that I didn't grow up in an immigrant community, I didn't grow up paying a lot of attention to these issues, and I had no idea that most of these things were happening. But they are. So I want to talk just a few of those things, and then I'll turn it over to Jenny to figure out how would we respond to that biblically. Well, one thing that's happening right now is a lot of families are being divided. Um, As people are deported, there's been about 400,000 deportations each year for the past several years. A lot of those people who are deported have U.S. citizen children, sometimes very small children. Um, About 205,000 parents of U.S. citizens were deported between July 2010 and September 2012. Just over a year-long period, more than 200,000 parents of U.S. citizens were deported. And the potential is actually much greater than that because there's about 5.1 million kids in this country who have at least one parent who's undocumented. And you don't need to change any law to deport those people. You have to spend a lot of money that no one's willing to spend, but you don't need to change a law to deport them under the law. And what happens in most of those cases is maybe those kids go to their parents' country of origin, not back to their country, because usually they've never been to that country. Sometimes they might go live with relatives. Sometimes they might live with a family from the church. And sometimes they go into foster care. There's about 5,100, about 5,000 100 kids in foster care right now because a parent has been detained or deported. And if deportations continue, we should expect that number of kids in foster care to continue as well. That leads to another topic. As people are waiting to be deported, what often happens is that our government puts them in detention. A detention is basically jail, um, sometimes actually operated by like a county jail, sometimes operated by a private company that has a contract with the federal government to detain people, keep them from, you know, basically to incarcerate them. In fact, in 2011, there was 429,000 individuals detained um, because of immigration violations or suspected immigration violations. That's a dramatic increase over the past 15 years or so. In 1995, we we detained about 7,500 people per night. Now in 2013, we're detaining about 33,000 people. Mm. So why, why would that have increased. Well, the rationale for detaining people is that, well, those people are dangerous. You have to keep them out of the population so they don't hurt anybody. And of course, I would agree, if somebody is a murderer or a rapist, you should probably keep them detained so they don't hurt anyone. But the reality is half of those 400,000 people who we detained in 2011 had no criminal conviction at all. To say nothing of a violent criminal conviction. So why would we detain them? Why would we spend a lot of money as our government to do that? Well, part of it is that there's a profit incentive. Because the people who are doing the detention are, in many cases, private companies. And they have contracts with the federal government, basically your tax dollars, that receive about $122 per night per head, on average, to detain people. So it's in their interest to have more people in detention. In fact, they spend a lot of money lobbying Congress, lobbying legislators to say, we need to detain more people. These people are dangerous. Mm. They spent about $20 million between 1999 and 2009 on lobbying at the federal level. 
And then they also find other ways to increase their profits by lowering their costs, right? Because you have to hire people to run these detention facilities. But you could lower your costs if you had the people who are detained actually do some of the work. And they charge for things, for example, a phone card to call your relatives outside costs about $20 in most of these facilities, or just a few minutes of talk time. A pillow in at least one facility costs $8. If you'd like to have a pillow to sleep at night. And one way that you could earn money in some of these facilities is you could work within the detention facility. You'll be paid $1 per day. Um, and that's actually legal. It's technically volunteering. It's a stipend that you're offered. And if you don't have anything else to do and you really want to call your family, you might do it. So there's, that's another area of injustice. Another injustice that some of us are aware of is the reality of human trafficking. And that connects really closely to issues of immigration. That's because um, while there are U.S. citizens who are victims of trafficking... Uh, the Department of Justice estimates that there's as many as 17,500 foreign-born victims of human trafficking trafficked into the United States every single year. Um, if you look at labor trafficking in particular, um, which is when people are forced to work under force or fraud or coercion, 95% of the victims of Department of Justice-prosecuted trafficking, labor trafficking cases are foreign-born. And 70% of those are undocumented. In fact, it's often the, a person's lack of legal status that makes them uniquely vulnerable to exploitation, that they feel like they can't call the police, they can't complain to anybody because you know, they're at risk. Sometimes what will happen is people who are really desperate to come for a better life, who are not eligible to come lawfully, they pay someone to bring them unlawfully. And that smuggler ends up also being their, becoming their trafficker because once they get here, they say, well, you owe us $10,000. They say, well, I don't have $10,000. And they say, well, you can earn it. Um, and here's this job we have for you. We're going to prostitute you. Or we're going to have you work in the back of this, this kitchen in this restaurant. And in the meantime, you, can stay, you have to stay here until you pay us back. We won't let you out. And you have to pay us rent for the back of this kitchen where you're going to be sleeping. And it becomes a cycle that they never get out of. One other way that we see some injustice in our, in our economic situations um, related to immigration is when people who are undocumented are often afraid to report if they're being exploited, not necessarily to the level of human trafficking, but in other ways. For example, wage theft. Sometimes people are told, I'm going to pay you for this job, you know, $10 an hour, and then after the job is done well, they say, actually, I'm going to pay you $8 an hour. Who are you going to complain to? Or I'm not going to pay you at all. And who are you going to complain to? Um, Here in Chicago, the UIC did a study a couple years ago that looked at car wash workers, the vast majority of whom are undocumented. If you have your car washed, pretty good chance that the person washing your car does not have legal status. They found that 75% of them were earning less than the legal minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And only 2% reported that they'd ever been paid overtime wages, even though most of them were working overtime. Now, that's usually people who are being paid in cash under the table, and that actually represents about one in four undocumented workers. But the other side of this is that three out of four undocumented workers are being paid with a paycheck. And that usually means they're using a false social security number. Um, in fact, the Social Security Administration acknowledges uh, that they receive as much as $15 billion every single year from numbers that don't match the names on the card. And they know that the vast majority of that's coming from documented immigrants, people who are working without authorization. But they don't send the money back. And they send it on to my grandparents and to other people who've paid into the retirement system but those people who are working, who might work 20, 30, 40 years without authorization, when they retire, or if they would like the luxury of retiring, when they turn 65, if they went to the Social Security office and said, hey, I'd like to get my retirement benefit, they're going to get laughed at. Your bogus Social Security card is not valid for any sort of benefit, only for paying in. In fact, we have a very duplicitous system, because our Department of Homeland Security says you're not supposed to be here. But the Internal Revenue Service, which is a different part of the federal government, says but you should pay your taxes anyway. And whether you're here lawfully or not, whether you are working lawfully or not, file your taxes, and we promise we won't talk to the Department of Homeland Security. They've been good on that promise. Most of my neighbors who are undocumented file their taxes, and, you know, they're not really concerned about filing their taxes triggering a deportation. So there's a lot of injustice, and in some ways we're all complicit in it. You like to eat. are almost guaranteed eating food that was picked by immigrant workers because half of the farm workers in this country are undocumented. Mm. And their average wages account for about $11,000 per year. Mm. So that's one opportunity to seek justice. I want to look real quickly at one other opportunity, and then I'll turn it over to Jenny. In Matthew 28, we're told to go and make disciples of all nations. 
we can do that by sending missionaries to other parts of the world, but we would also be missing something really important mm-hmm. if we didn't notice that God had sent the nations to our communities. Yes. Here in Chicago, yes. you have every nation of the world represented. Mm-hmm. And that presents an incredible missional opportunity. I'm, I'm going to show you this quote from Tim Tennant, who's at Asbury Seminary. It says that 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians. That's far above the national average. Mm-hmm. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. God is at work through the movement of people, both as people come into this country who don't know Jesus, people whom God made in his image, whom he sent his son to die for, whom he yearned to have a relationship with. They might become your next-door neighbor. You have the opportunity to love them as your neighbor and to share the hope of the gospel. And it also works on the other side because there are people who come into this country with a vibrant Christian faith, who breathe new life into churches that could use some new life, Mm. and at the same time share the gospel with people both in their own ethnic communities and beyond. So it's an incredible opportunity, and my fear is that we might be missing it. Mm. At least, not necessarily your local church, I think you're probably ahead of the curve on this, but if we look at evangelical churches in the United States across the whole, only 10% have any sort of ministry or ministry partnership reach out to immigrants. One in ten. Mm. Nine out of ten are sitting on the sidelines. And why is that? I think it might be because it's hard to see an opportunity if you're fixated on an imagined threat. Mm. Um, if we go back to that idea of Pharaoh, he saw this threat, and a lot of American Christians see immigration as a threat. Pew Research Center found in 2010 that a slight majority of white evangelicals, which I know isn't all of you, but is my category of Christian, a slight majority say that they see immigrants as a threat to their customs and values. And I would suggest that that's probably because only about 12% of white evangelicals and 9% of all Protestant Christians say that they think about this issue of immigration primarily from the perspective of their faith. Mm. That's a scandal, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we are the people who say that Scripture is our authority for all of life. Mm -hmm. But part of it is that only 16% of white evangelicals and 20% of all Protestant Christians have ever heard this topic discussed in church. Mm. So Again, you guys are ahead of the curve on that. I know I talked about this here several years ago, and you've probably heard it since then. But I want to just turn it over to Jenny to talk about what does the Bible actually say on this topic? Thanks so, Thanks so much, Matt. Um, you know, what's interesting is I, we both work for an organization called World Relief, um, which has an office right here in Chicago. And one of the things that was interesting to me as I thought about immigration um, about six or seven years ago, I grew up in a Korean, uh, Korean home, and I never really thought about immigration because, you know, my, my parents came, and, you know, my parents owned a small business in Philadelphia, and the issues of immigration were never something that really I thought about growing up. But um, as I started working at World Relief, what really struck me was that I work in Washington, D.C., where, you know, I work on a lot, lot of immigration policy, and as I walked into congressional offices, really at the height of the immigration debate, so many of the calls that were coming into these offices were saying, we don't want immigrants here, let's get them all about out of our country. And what the staffers of these offices were telling me were that so many of the people who are calling in are actually saying that they're Christian. Mm. And the fact that their faith is motivating them to, to actually not be welcoming of immigrants um, into their communities. And that startled me, not just as... Um, you know, an American here, but really because I was a believer. And when I look back at scripture, I saw that there's so much the Bible has to say about immigrants. Mm. And I myself was shocked because as I read through scripture again and again, there was so much, not only references to immigrants, but the fact that major biblical characters were oftentimes immigrants themselves. And in fact, the word for immigrant in Hebrew is ger, G-E-R. And it's actually mentioned 92 times in the Old Testament alone. 92 times. And when you actually read a lot of these verses that reference the immigrant, that reference the GER in these communities, is oftentimes mentioned as vulnerable people, as people who literally had to leave everything behind to find a new home. Um, One of the things that also was absolutely fascinating to me was that from Genesis to Revelation, there's so many biblical characters that we revere um, in our faith that actually were migrants themselves. So if you remember the story of Abraham, he was literally called by God to leave his homeland, right, and to go to another land that God would show him. But he didn't want to go because he didn't know where he was going. And yet the very fact that God called him out of his homeland and led him to different places, basically that um, 
solidified his faith in God. And it was through his migration experience that he literally experienced God's faithfulness in his life. And even in the story of Ruth, she was someone that was a Moabite and literally followed her mother into a new land. And it was as she was gleaning the wheat and as she was gleaning the crops that Boaz noticed her as a foreigner. And it was through their relationship that they became the descendants of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm. And even though their relationship was one based on um, uh, someone who was managing the crops and the foreigner, it was, they had an intense love for each other that resulted in them expanding their family. And it was through Ruth's migration experience that she was able to fulfill what God had planned for her and her entire family. Mm. But we even see the story of Jesus. You know, oftentimes during Christmas time, we know that Jesus was born in a manger and that it was a lovely, lovely story. But I think Jesus was an immigrant on two levels because it says in Matthews that Jesus was in the realms of heaven, but he left the realms of heaven and he pitched his town among men. And so on one level, he's a celestial migrant because he left heaven and he migrated to earth. But then in the real sense of his story of being one with us, being a human being walking on this earth... Um, as a baby, Mary and Joseph had to flee an edict by King Herod that said that all Hebrew babies under two were supposed to be killed off. So even at a young age, Jesus had to flee into Egypt with his parents. And he was a little refugee boy um, fleeing the wrath. And his parents literally didn't want him to get uh, killed off. And so Jesus, I think when we read about scripture and we read the story of these migrants throughout the text, we also recognize that Jesus himself actually identifies with a migrant because he himself was one when he was here on this earth as well. Mm. Um, it's also, as we read through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, I think it's so wonderful because we often hear about the widow and the orphan. And a lot of churches have um, you know, sponsorship programs to help orphan children, or oftentimes we look out for the widow in our communities. But oftentimes I don't think we realize that it's the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And the reason why the Old Testament goes into why these three specific categories of people are really vulnerable is because these were oftentimes the people that had to leave everything behind or had nothing in their community to actually take care of them. Orphans didn't have parents. Widows didn't have a spouse. And immigrants had no family, no communities um, in the host communities where they were going to to actually take care of them. And so in Israelite law, what we see is that God specifically commanded the Israelite nation when immigrants are coming to your community, you have to take care of them. Do not oppress them because they're vulnerable, but actually look out for them and take care of them. It says in Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. It says in Zechariah 7, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. And then in Jeremiah 7, it says, if you truly reform your ways and your actions, if you treat each other justly, if you stop taking advantage of the immigrant, the orphan, or widow, if you don't shed the blood of the innocent in this place or go after other gods to your own ruin, only then will I dwell with you in this place. And I think this is especially relevant, not just for the nation of Israel, but also for us as, as, as Americans as well. Because how many of us recall the story of our families either migrating here or you know, our grandparents maybe told us how they came over here from Europe or from Africa or from parts of Asia. So the immigrant story is one that I think all of us as Americans really identify with. And it was the same as the nation of Israel. They were a people who were on the move, who were basically an, in exodus from one place to another. So the reason why God commanded the Israelites to take care of the foreigner was because they themselves were foreigners. Mm. And God said that, don't forget that you yourselves are foreigners at one point. In fact, it says in um, Exodus 23, 9, you must not oppress foreigners. You know what it's like to be a foreigner, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Now, I think as we go through scripture and as we read so many of these verses in the Old Testament that say to treat immigrants with justice and compassion, you know, a lot of Christians are torn because that's fine. You know, I understand the fact that I'm supposed to show compassion and, and justice to immigrants, but I also know that we're supposed to uh, submit to the rule of law. And in Romans 13, it says that we're all called to submit to the governing authorities. And for a lot of immigrants that are here without legal status, they're flaunting the law because they, they're breaking immigration laws right now. And I think on a, that, that verse needs to be taken in context because as we look at the laws of our land today, I think if we're here as U.S. citizens, there's nothing illegal we can do in welcoming immigrants into our communities. 
whether we teach English or whether we invite an immigrant into our homes or whether we, you know, talk to them or, or worship with them, there's nothing illegal in that activity. Now, when I talk to a lot of immigrants and you're heal from, you'll hear from someone today, um, it's a struggle that they make, uh, that they have in, in sometimes breaking immigration laws to be here. But a lot of them have lived in desperate situations, are here um, in desperate, uh, in desperation. A lot of them are in really uh, fearful situations. And I think oftentimes we uphold the law as something that cannot be changed. And there's times in their history as a country when laws have not been just and where they have been changed because they have been unjust. And I'm not saying that immigration laws are necessarily unjust, but I do think when you look at our immigration laws, they have not been reformed in over 40 years. The laws that we have on our books right now that regulate who comes in and who leaves from our country were formed when President Kennedy was in office. And as American citizens, I think we have a responsibility when the laws are not working for the common good to change them so that they actually work for the common good. Um, and I think I just want to end on this point because, you know, as I talk to a lot of people, you know, either at churches or at conferences, and we think about this issue of immigration, so often our tendency is to think about immigration through the lens of our identity and patriotism to the United States of America, which is great. You know, we all grow up pledging allegiance to the flag, and we have an affinity for this country. But I think oftentimes as Christians, we tend to merge those two identities together. And rather than... Um, having our identity in Christ be first, we have our identity as Americans be first. And that forms our, our opinions and our attitudes toward a lot of immigrants who are coming into our communities. But I want to really challenge us on that point because in First Peter 2, it says that I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world that our citizenship isn't of this world, um, but it's of heaven. And oftentimes the response that God calls us to um, to welcome immigrants and strangers into our midst. It's a challenging one, and sometimes it can be costly. But our allegiance shouldn't be necessarily to our country, but it should be to what God, we feel like God is calling us to do. And, you know, Pastor Peter was sharing a little bit earlier about the resurrection and the fact, you know, what is the significance of Jesus resurrecting from the dead and becoming, um, you know, Lord over this earth. And I feel like one of the greatest causes that we can have that marks identity as followers of Christ is what our response is to immigrants who are coming into our communities. As Matt said earlier, are we going to be acting in a spirit of fear and think that immigrants are a threat? Or are we really going to be welcoming them, seeing that in the face of immigrants in our communities, that we're really seeing the face of God? And it's through their stories that we can have an expanded understanding mm. of what God is doing right here in our midst. So with that, I think um, we're actually going to be hearing a story from someone in our community who's been um, going through this experience herself. How many of you guys saw Love and Know Lorena? Yeah, Yeah, look at that. Um, Lorraine has part of, been a part of our church family for about eight years. Yeah, and we were just joking around this morning. I remember having coffee with her at Mojo's, which longer exists, eight years ago, and talking to a young lady. Um, and the journey that she's been on, uh, it's incredible. And you'll hear the story in a little bit. But I just wanted to pray for Lorena. Is that okay, church family? Let's come. Father, we pray for Lorena at this time as she shares. As I prayed earlier, God, we love her. We are her family. Just uh, hands that are raised and the faces out there, may they be reminded to Lorena that she will never, ever be without a family. Brothers and sisters who care for her, love her, and have been a vital part of her journey. And that she has been a blessing to us as much as we've been a blessing to her. So I pray right now that you'd calm the nerves. And just as you spoke powerfully and eloquently through her earlier, pray that you would do that again. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello. As Pastor Peter mentioned, um, my name is Lorena, and I have been part of New Community for eight years now. And I wanted to share my personal story and experience as an undocumented person. The story is shared by millions of undocumented people 
Um, the details might vary, but the struggles and the fears are the same. I was born in Cuernavaca, Morelos, Mexico, which is about two hours from Mexico City. My father was an alcoholic and a drug user, and my mom loved him until he became physically abusive. While my mom took the majority of the blows, it affected me tremendously. When I was five, my mom found out she was pregnant and finally realized that she had had enough, so we ran away. We went back to my grandparents' house, and he came after us. He was armed, and he was ready to fight my grandfather. We were terrified. We needed to get away, far away. My mom had two sisters here, and their families were willing to take us in, so we set our hope for safety in Chicago. Our family helped us put together enough money to hire a coyote, which is a person that is paid to guide immigrants across the Mexico-U.S. border. One, um, the walk across the border is a couple of days. It's much longer now. The safe routes, the safe routes are really dangerous now, and the dangerous routes are even more so. Um, I remember we had to be very quiet. We did most of the traveling at night. I don't remember a lot of the details, except um, getting separated from my mom at one point um, during a hectic night run. We saw flashlights at a distance, and we needed to run for cover. So my aunt that came along, she um, grabbed my mom's hand, and they started running, and my mom's cousin carried me, but he ran the opposite direction, so we got separated. Um, everything was fine. We found each other the next morning. Um, it was just scary. Once across the border, we stayed at a safe house, and soon after, we were driven to Chicago. We arrived in early March of 91. I remember being really cold. We got my first, ring, uh, my first winter coat, and I built my first snowman that week. My mom and aunt found work at a factory where my uncles worked, and I was enrolled in school. Six months later, my sister was born, and my mom had to go back to work right away. So after school, I would help my aunt take care of her and my cousins. Um, school was difficult at first. I was placed in a Spanish-only class in the beginning. Um, I was switched to bilingual class in third grade. was confused about half of the time, and... I didn't get the chance to learn English properly until I was about 10, thanks to a CPS teacher who um, dedicated her time to tutor me, and um, I will always remember her. My circumstances didn't affect me as much at this point in my life. I was worried about other things like losing my Spanish accent so I would fit in, learning to appreciate English music and American cartoons and trying to figure out who Clarissa was and did she explain it all. <laughs> um, I knew I was different, but I didn't know how it would affect um, my life, me not being a citizen, until I was a junior in high school when college was the major topic, topic of conversation. I had spoken to my counselor, and she made me feel that college was just not going to be an option for me. Growing up, an undocumented immigrant, you learn not to ask too many questions because a lot of the time, these questions lead to questions about your status, and it puts yourself and your family at risk. So I dropped the subject. Thinking that I didn't have many options after graduation, I started looking for a job, but it would be a year before I found one. Um, I was volunteering for Young Life, at that point, and during one of the conversations with my area directors, they told me that you didn't need a social security number to apply to community college and encouraged me to check it out, and I did. Um, filled with apprehension and excitement all at once, I walked into Wilbur Wright and enrolled. Turns out I could attend college. I just couldn't apply for financial aid or student loans, so I had to start out really slow, taking one class at a time. Once I started working, I was able to sign up for more. During this time, the DREAM Act was waiting to be passed. The DREAM Act would allow me to continue my school, my schooling, so I had high hopes. I aspired to be a nurse, so I took a lot of the prereqs for a nursing program. 
the DREAM Act didn't pass, so I had to put that dream on hold. I continued to work. I worked full-time at that time and continued to volunteer for Young Life. Life had to go on. I remember there was a really scary time around 2009 um, where it was a scary time for, for the immigration community as a whole. It happened when police officers were given the right to stop people and ask for documentation, basically racially profiling people um, to check their status. And there were a lot of raids in factories and other employments, um, even things happening really close to home, just two blocks away from where I live. Um, police forced entry into an apartment at 5 a.m. to arrest the father of the household who was a sole provider. That story and many others blared from, from Spanish news day after day. Not many other stories made it to the American news. Um, I remember when hearing that story, it shook me to the core. I was terrified. Um, one of my closest friends, Liz, um, was working in Washington, D.C. at the time. So I called her in tears, and we cried, and we prayed, and we formulated a plan. Um, if ever my parents or myself were detained or arrested, um, my siblings and my family knew to call Liz because she would have the contact information to a lawyer and other resources that would help us um, if that was the situation. My mom was afraid to drive, but it wasn't an option for her to stop working. Um, so we just took that risk. And we called each other throughout the day just to make sure that we were still safe. God has continually placed people in my life, surrounded me um, with just people that encouraged me and have been my support team, my cheerleaders, my prayer warriors. After many years of prayer, um, finally one of them was answered. On June 2012, President Obama passed an executive order called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, referred to as DACA. Um, DACA would exempt young people from, who were brought into the U.S. before the age of 16 from deportation. It also provides a two-year work permit. Um, that same month, I had the privilege to attend the Dreamers graduation in D.C., which, for the first time, I was able to come alongside hundreds of undocumented youth and our allies um, and demonstrate the need for reform and just laws. It was so encouraging to see so many young people come together, speak out, and stand up for themselves and their loved ones. Since I qualified for DACA in September, I hired a lawyer and we submitted my application. I received my work permit in November, and a couple weeks later, I received my modified Social Security number, which allowed me to go to the DMV and get my driver's license. With that, I walked into a nursing assistant school and signed up. Mm. In March, I passed the state boards, and I am now officially a CNA. Mm. The last couple of weeks, I've just been applying to jobs and um, to hospitals that I want to work in. The last few months have been a roller coaster of emotions, to say the least. Um, while DACA is such an amazing, huge step forward, it is just the beginning. Um, I'm still not a citizen. Millions of people are still suffering, and thousands are being deported each day. My mom brought me here for a better life. And each day I work hard to make that a reality. I dream of advancing my education, supporting my family, serving my beautiful city. Mm. I dream of being fully and freely American. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I, I love being Mexican. I love being bilingual. And I like being brown. So mm. this is not an issue, but this is my home. Amen. Thank you.
Thank you, Lorena. Come on out. As it was clear from the nine o'clock, there are people who have known Lorena personally, and it was very emotionally powerful um, because of the close relationships. And Liz is one of them. I want to introduce you to Liz and Ashley. They both do things um, to live out their passion for this issue of immigration. Liz is uh, one of our leaders in the immigration team at New Community. And Ashley has essentially given her life for this passion. And uh, I didn't know until I started talking to Matt. And Ashley, maybe you can say a little bit, but I was talking to Matt. Like, yeah, by the way, one of the speakers is going to be Ashley. He's like, yeah, I know her. I'm like, how do you know Ashley? And he goes, well, she was my boss at World Relief. I was like, what? Then I hear that a big part of Ashley's journey to becoming a follower of Christ was around being around men and women whose justice for this issue inspired her. I just, like God's at work is just amazing. And so Liz and Ashley, I asked them, share a little bit about what they do, but really to make this more practical. I know this is a huge issue, but to get, begin to think about, like, what do we do about this as followers of Christ? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much to Lorena. Um, we talked this morning about... Um, over here. You have to be over here. It works better when you're here. Um, we we uh, talked this morning about, we were at Mojo's again, this coffee shop that no longer exists, but apparently everyone <laughs> went to. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> Back in the day. So we were at Mojo's, and this was in 06, 07, after, you know, the DREAM Act didn't, wasn't passed initially, and um, Arizona was is starting to lose its mind completely, and uh, it's just, it, was really rough, it was just a really rough time, um, to, and a scary time, and I just, we were frustrated and angry, um, and I think the way that we hope the immigration ministry at our church can look like is relationship, because mm-hmm. it really is, that's what it is, mm-hmm. that's what it's based on, um, because fear is such a huge issue and being isolated is such um, a huge issue, I think. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Got me again today. I blame you, Lorena. Um, being isolated and being afraid um, is such a big part of um, the exploitation. I think that as a church community, if we're able to um, be fearless for each other right. um, and really advocate for each other yeah. and create safe space. Yeah. Um, that is that is what our our goal mm-hmm. is, um, and so that's what we really are trying to encourage the church to be a part of, and mm-hmm. what we want to create opportunities for mm-hmm. everyone here to be able to do. Um, so, yeah, basically, my story is one that's really inspired by Lorena's story, mm-hmm. um, and through that initial relationship, how I got involved with this issue, um, and why I continue to do work on it. Um, so again, just to sort of ease into now out of the hugeness of this issue, out of all the numbers that we just heard, um, sort of the heaviness of this issue, um, there are some opportunities for the church to practically get involved. Um, one of them is the Justice for Our Neighbors Legal Clinic. Um, we have the dates up front. The, um, April 27th is the one that's coming up soonest, um, and then the other ones are listed. They're all Saturdays, so we'd need volunteers from 8.30 to 1.30. Um, if you're unable to do the full time, you can break it, it, break it up into two-hour shifts. And then also, what we do now and what we're able to offer now as an immigration ministry team is limited to our current capacity. So if you're interested in this issue, if you have ideas about this issue, ways you want to get involved, but you don't necessarily see those opportunities offered at this time, please uh, send an email. My email is listed up here, and it's also in the bulletin. Um, And we'd love to talk to you about that interest and if it's possible to try and create and expand the opportunities that we can to um, to serve our community. So... So um, I think there are also other people in the immigration team. I just want to give them a moment to stand up if you're part of the immigration team. Are they here? I know they're here at 9 a.m. Anyone? 
Oh, I think they're all at 9 a.m. Never mind. <laughs> so there are a lot of people here that are really dedicated to this issue that couldn't be here. Yeah. But um, I personally came to this work um, at first it was because of my own personal story. Um, my family's from China. Uh, my grandfather came over here and documented, spent many years apart from the rest of my family before he could bring over my mother, or my grandmother, or all of my aunts and uncles in the 60s. Um, and I'm really proud that my family came over and documented and really contributed uh, to a lot of hard work. Uh, they were restaurant cooks and waiters, and we had our own laundromat, too. And um, one of the first uh, immigration laws that was racially biased and exclusive was the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm. which banned any Chinese people from coming over mm. legally for many, many years um, and uh, on another end, um, I also really came to faith um, in this issue. I was a community organizer, working my heart out with immigrant communities um, because of stories like Lorena's mm. and many others um, that encompass such a wide, wide issue. Um, I was really moved by the faith um, that is the bedrock of mm. um, many of immigrant communities. Mm. Um, and I... I saw, for example, um, a soul sister of mine, Carmen Castillo, uh, just clinging to God. Mm. Uh, she had been injured in her workplace and couldn't use one of her arms anymore. But every single day she's going to church. Every single day she's mm. going to work to make enough money to support her family. Mm. And I saw her faith and I said, God, if I could have something like that. Mm. And then God put many people along my path, one of them being Matt Sorens, mm. to point me the way to this beautiful church, mm. to Pastor Peter, and being the Holy Spirit moving me to respond to one of those altar calls that he does. Ah. <laughs> 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 um, I'm here today, um, mm. and, you know, during the day, I really uh, have, have dedicated my whole life to this issue mm. because immigrant story is my story, but also it's story of what God is moving in the world today. Yes. It's where I find God. Yeah. It's where I am daily sustained. And uh, I'm the Midwest field coordinator, so I'm working with five different states, and it's my job to help churches like ours and mm. leaders like Lorena and, and Liz and pastors like Pastor Peter to figure out, okay, how is God uniquely equipping each and every one of us to respond to this issue? Mm. And I know for a fact that there are many stories in our church um, many people are maybe not undocumented, maybe on the verge of being undocumented. Mm. Your sister, your cousin, your brother's undocumented, but you're a citizen, right? So we're hoping that this is opportunity for many more stories to come up. It takes a lot of courage to come up and tell your story, but it's the way that God works through each and every one of us when we fully know one another mm. and we're fully able to love one another yes. in knowing one another's yeah. realities. So, Ashley, say a little bit earlier at 9 o'clock, about practical ways that we could begin to open our eyes to see the undocumented yeah. immigrants in our community. So um, I want uh, everyone to raise your hand if you have an immigrant story, whether it's yourself or your family. Raise your hand. That's the majority of our church. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I want everyone to raise your hand if you eat meat or if you eat lettuce, tomatoes, <laughs> fruit. Eat food. Oh, my Lord. I think that's everybody. <laughs> well, I want you to know that the meatpacking industry is one of the most dangerous jobs in America mm. today. And it is largely majority undocumented labor, men and women that lose their lives and mm. risk their lives just to make a living, to send money back home to their family. Mm. That's also the people that are picking our fruit, that are uh, cultivating the lettuce and, and our crops. Um, if you ever, how many here go to a restaurant? Mm -hmm. that's, that's like all of us, right? Like how many times a week? Um, these are our busboys, our waiters, our waitresses. Something that we have to do is we have to open our eyes to the people that are in this country mm. that are sustaining our daily lives, right? God calls us and he transforms our hearts through relationship, through what you see here with Liz and Lorena, right? Myself and many other people. Um, I challenge all of you to open your eyes, strike up a conversation with mm. a busboy. You know, I know language is an issue, but try. Mm. Um, strike up a conversation wherever you see um, immigrants, they're there. 
and let God transform your heart. God, we thank you and we praise you. And our prayer is that this wouldn't be just a one-stop journey, but then the journey would continue. Lord, in, in the midst of trying to figure out what our response would be, we want to hear from you, God. We want to hear from you, Holy Spirit. We want to be guided, as our speakers talked about today, by the power of your word. We don't, we don't want to hear just public opinion. We want your scripture to inform us. And God, also thank you for challenging us today with Ashley, Liz, and Lorena on the power of relationships, on the power of community, on the power of what happens when we get to know each other, when we get to know one another, when we actually put aside, God, our biases and hear one another's stories and engage in community and the power of that and what that can do. God, I also thank you for the challenge from Ashley that we would open our eyes. That the people that our culture and our society deems invisible, that you would make them visible to us. That you would allow our eyes to be open to see our neighbors and our brothers and sisters and the real stories behind them. Open our eyes to see the beauty of this city and all the people that make it beautiful. God, thank you that you sent your son, the ultimate immigrant, to live among us. May we do the same into the communities and the workplaces and the neighborhoods you send us to beginning tomorrow. In small ways and big ways, help us to be your salt and your light and to be your kingdom people. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, panel. They'll be around to speak, answer questions. We'll see you guys back here next Sunday. Take care.